Could you use a little water in your whiskey? When I drink whiskey, I drink whiskey. And when I drink water, I drink water. But back to business now. From Chicago, this is The Unenthusiastic Critic, a podcast about destroying your marriage one movie at a time. everyone and welcome to The Unenthusiastic Critic. I'm Michael McDonough. I write about film and television at unaffiliatedcritic.com. With me today, and she has a fearful temper, you might as well know about it now, is my lovely wife Nakia, also known as The Unenthusiastic Critic. Hello. <laughs> On this week's episode, Nakia and I are celebrating St. Patrick's Day by heading back to the Emerald Isle with I John... I am not celebrating St. Patrick's Day. <laughs> with John Wayne and Maureen O'Hara for John Ford's 1952 classic, The Quiet Man. You're going into this with attitude already. Yes, I am. (laughs) Isn't that my brand? It is, yes, but sometimes you're more on brand than other times. Mm -hmm. This is clearly going to be one of those weeks. Yeah, it is. All right. Uh, Before we get to this particular movie, let's talk about these two men. Director John Ford and movie star John Wayne, who... For better or worse, I think, are as important to 20th century cinema as anyone I can think of. You, I'm pretty sure, have never seen any John Ford films. Uh, I don't even need to go over the list. I looked at it. You haven't seen any John Ford films. <laughs> okay. And I don't think you've seen any John Wayne movies, uh, have no, you? No, I have not. Okay. It's kind of shameful that we haven't watched any films by John Ford. And in fact, we haven't even done any westerns, which is what he's primarily known for. Mm-hmm. Uh, But there are several of Ford's films on our list that we'll get to eventually, including Stagecoach, The Grapes of Wrath, The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance, The Searchers, and a personal favorite of mine, Mr. Roberts. Critic Andrew Harris called Ford America's Cinematic Poet Laureate. Orson Welles, when asked to name his three favorite directors, said John Ford, John Ford, and John Ford. Directing nearly 150 movies over a 50-year career that ranged from the silent era to the 1970s, Ford was one of the quintessential old Hollywood directors, a hugely influential master, and still, nearly 50 years after his death, the most decorated director in Oscar history, with four wins for Best Director. No living director has more than two wins, so that's a record unlikely to be broken anytime soon. And, of course, Ford is known for his long collaboration with John Wayne, who was, make no mistake, the most popular actor of the 20th century. On the Harris Poll's 2016 list of America's favorite movie stars, Wayne, 38 years after his death, was in the top five. The only dead actor to make the list, and in fact, in over 20 years of that poll, he never fell off the list. Americans love them some John Wayne. Mm -hmm. Ford discovered Wayne when he had just dropped out of college during the Depression, working odd jobs in the Fox Studios lot. Ford gave him his first minor roles, but... The baby-faced Wayne hadn't yet aged into his iconic status. It was about 10 years later that Ford helped him become a major leading man with 1939's Stagecoach. Over a 50-year career, Wayne made 142 movies. 83 of them were westerns. As Stephen Metcalf writes in The Atlantic, in the final tally, Ford and Wayne made 23 pictures together. Three of them, Stagecoach, The Searchers, and The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance, are, by any standard, among the best and most important Hollywood films ever made. 
Quoting scholar Nancy Schoenberger, Metcalf says that, In their creative partnership, the two men succeeded in defining an ideal of American masculinity that dominated for nearly half a century. And this is what I think, however you feel about John Wayne, and we can talk about John Wayne, mm -hmm. I think is what makes him interesting, and I think is what makes him kind of an unignorable figure in American culture. I mean, I think between them, I think Ford didn't just define what movies were, but I think defined what the image of America was on screen. So it was just hugely influential just to America's self-image above and beyond just the movies themselves. And John Wayne was his creation, was this masculine ideal of the American male that is still to this day held up as this idealized figure by the right. Mm -hmm. I mean, Trump when he was running for president, trumpeted the fact that John Wayne's family had endorsed him and tried to buy into that image. Ronald Reagan played into that mm -hmm. John Wayne image. I mean, he's just this kind of undeniable figure in American culture. And like I said, Wayne was Ford's creation. Wayne called him coach or pappy. Ford was the godfather to his children. Ford was apparently brutal to Wayne on the set of all of these movies, like really heavy-handedly heavy shaping his image, how he walked, how he talked, everything about his screen persona. And this despite the fact that the two men were politically opposed. Ford was a Democrat, he was progressive, he was an outspoken opponent of McCarthyism, whereas Wayne was a staunch conservative, he was a pro-military hawk, though he himself conveniently dodged military service. He was a fierce anti-communist who supported reactionary bodies like the House Committee on Un-American Activities, the John Birch Society. As Adam Howard writes at MSNBC, like many modern conservatives who were riled by social upheavals brought about by the gay rights and Black Lives Matter movements, Wayne was a stubborn bulwark against the more progressive filmmakers and stars that began to take over Hollywood in the late 60s and 70s. In fact, in 1968, segregationist George Wallace even considered Wayne as a potential running mate for a third-party presidential bid, but Wayne demurred. That same year, Wayne made an unabashedly pro-Vietnam film. He trashed student activists. He spoke out against welfare culture and people wanting handouts. And just recently, people on Twitter discovered, quote-unquote, since it had long been public record, Wayne's controversial 1971 interview with Playboy, in which he declared, I believe in white supremacy until the blacks are educated to a point of responsibility. As Howard also writes, Wayne also displayed little sympathy for the Native Americans. He was routinely portrayed slaughtering in the movies. I don't feel we did wrong in taking this great country away from them, Wayne said. There were great numbers of people who needed new land, and the Indians were selfishly trying to keep it for themselves. So, basically, John Wayne was on the horrifying side of every single issue in his lifetime. And it seems to me this is probably precisely why he was the quintessential American icon. He basically embodied every dangerous illusion America has about itself. The white supremacy, the American exceptionalism, the myth of manifest destiny, the rugged bootstrap mentality, the toxic masculinity, the reliance on traditional gender roles, the faith in violence. Like, it, he's like a perfect distillation of 20th century Americanism. This is why you are so excited to encounter John Wayne. Mm -hmm. And this is, I mean, you and I talk sometimes about what they're calling, you know, outrage culture or cancel culture right now. Mm -hmm. Like, at what point do you just say, I'm not going to watch any John Wayne movies? 
mm-hmm. which I guess is, is that sort of where you are? I mean, yeah, I, I have never had any interest in watching a John Wayne film. Public Enemy told us back in like 1989 to fuck Elvis and fuck John Wayne. So, <laughs> okay, <laughs> I don't really need, <laughs> need to explore those avenues then. And, you know, as a young black woman, there was nothing about that sort of iconography that appealed to me or interested me mm-hmm. in any way. So I, there was no um, desire to sort of seek out those, those, those films at all. I mean, I guess it's kind of like, you know, as far as the argument of this project of films you need to see, mm-hmm. I suppose this sort of falls on that border along with like Gone with the Wind. Right. Like, obviously Gone with the Wind is a hugely influential movie, mm-hmm. an important movie in American culture, an important movie to America's view of itself. Mm-hmm. But you you didn't want to watch that either. I did not want to watch it and I did not need to watch it. That was just a straight up propaganda film, quite frankly. Um, and so... I did not glean anything from watching that film. <laughs> uh, I Certainly did, nothing you didn't already know, something I guess. I did, right. Uh, well, I knew the truth of history, right. and then that tried to tell me that that wasn't the truth. Um, but you knew you also knew what the narrative was. Yes, then, I knew, so. right, which is, again, why I never had any interest in, in seeing that film um, prior to us sort of getting involved in this project. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's, it's sort of, I think there are sort of different types of films that we've engaged with through this little project of ours that some of it is I didn't see it and it was a big cultural moment and it's just sort of light fluff in a film Mm -hmm. and other films I have actively or other actors I have actively avoided because I find them to be, this is going to sound sort of hyperbolic, but dangerous to the like psyche of America. Mm -hmm. Like it, they, they sell you a very, um, a false bill of goods that have led to, you know, wars, racial terrorism, genocide. Like, it's just, like, it, it all sort of, I don't know, I can't describe it, but, uh, anything other than propaganda. Like, it really is sort of propping up this image and this ideology of America that... Is still <laughs> causing is trouble. Is still causing trouble. And, and, and romanticizes right. our hand in, you know, many of the world's ills in a way that just it makes me really uncomfortable. So, I mean, the fact that he was doing Westerns and is now, like, the the Native Americans were selfish about their land. Like, that's ludicrous. Right. And so it's just, like, I just don't, I don't buy into it. And so, yeah, I'm not super looking forward to this one. And and is there value in studying them and discussing them from that perspective, mm. these movies? I mean, this, this movie we're watching this week is not the best example of any of right, this. Right, right. As we'll discuss in a minute, it's, it's an outlier for both Wayne and Ford. Mm-hmm. Versus, you know, one of the other movies we'll watch where they're, you know, slaughtering Native Americans and that kind of thing. Right. I mean, I don't know that they're... Do you need to watch a John Wayne film to know what America thought of itself in was the 50s or... Yeah. No. <laughs> um, and again, it's, it's, it's false. It's a lie. So I don't know that there's any value to it. Okay. I, I, I think that's fair. <laughs> one other side note to this Ford-Wayne relationship that I came across that I I think it's interesting. I think it complicates their relationship. I don't know what to do with it, but so John Ford was not definitely, but almost certainly a closeted bisexual. I mean, he was, he was married. He had two children. He famously had affairs with starlets, including Catherine Hepburn. 
But there are endless rumors about his affairs with men as well. Maureen O'Hara, star of The Quiet Man, in fact said in her memoir that she came across Ford making out with a prominent Hollywood star, probably Tyrone Power, on the set of a movie they made together. And there's been a lot of there's been a lot of speculation and a lot of things written about that aspect of Ford's relationship to Wayne and that this sort of crafting of this ultra-masculine mm. ideal out of Wayne. As cover. And their relationship and whether he was in love with him or whatever. That doesn't, sure. you know, I don't think we know a lot about that. Wayne was homophobic. Y- yeah, fam- so, famously homophobic. Yeah, I mean, in that same interview, I think he was talking about Midnight Cowboy. Yes, he was. Um, where he used, the, you know, the derogatory term for gay men. Yeah. Um, so... That's interesting. Right. So, that, and that's the thing. It's just, an, it's just another interesting lens on their relationship. As going back to that, Met, that Stephen Metcalf article in The Atlantic, he writes, Ford was terrified of his own feminine side, so he foisted a longed-for masculinity on Wayne. A much simpler creature than Ford, Wayne turned this into a cartoon and then went further and politicized it. There was an awful pathos to their relationship. Wayne patterning himself on Ford at the same time that Ford was turning Wayne into a paragon no man could live up to. So, like I said, I don't know what to do with all of that, but again, I just find it interesting, this this whole notion of this American cultural ideal crafted out of artifice on the screen, mm-hmm. and this image of masculinity craft it's just all so much more complicated than we pretend it is, and when we hold up Wayne as this sort of masculine ideal, I don't know, it's, it's interesting to me. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think... You know, going back to sort of to that question of like, what is the value of sort of studying or, or experiencing these films and sort of engaging with them almost as like historical artifacts sort of things. There may be something to that as a sort of, particularly if we're talking about the world of Hollywood as a sort of marker of how far we haven't come. Mm-hmm. Um, so in that same Playboy interview, the interview asks him if he limits the number of blacks he uses in his films and he says, oh, Christ, no. I've directed two pictures and I gave the blacks their proper position. <laughs> I had a black slave in the Alamo and I had a correct number of blacks in the Green Berets. If it's supposed to be the correct, the correct, what is the number, correct of number of blacks. There's a correct number. I okay. don't know what it is, but there is a correct number. <laughs> if it's supposed to be a black character, naturally I use a black actor. But I don't go so far as hunting for positions for them. I think the Hollywood studios are carrying their tokenism a little too far. There's no doubt that 10% of the population is black or colored or whatever they want to call themselves. They certainly aren't Caucasian. Anyway, I suppose there should be the same percentage of the colored race in films as in society, but it can't always be that way. Ooh, that's a boldly progressive statement right there. There isn't necessarily going to be 10% of the grips or sound men who are black because more than likely 10% haven't trained, trained themselves for that type of work. And so, like, this is... You know, you could have that. No one would have this conversation this explicitly. But I mean, that is. But basically, that's the that's, position of right, a lot of people. A lot of people, today. right? And people who have had the benefit of a cultural and political will that at least was supposed to have been different than the sort of context within which Wayne was was operating in, right? And so, you and I have talked about the Cohen brothers and their whole thing. Right. Like, I'm not going to count you know, people of color in my family, like I might have a dog and I might have this. <laughs> right. and this. Yes, so it's just Jesus. like, so is that, which is basically this, you're saying the same yeah, shit. Yeah, you are saying exactly you know, the same it's thing. Just, it doesn't I'm sound, not going to go out of my way. Right, like, it right. doesn't sound as horrifying, but <laughs> you're saying the same thing. And so I think it could be useful in that way of like tracking of this idea that, oh, Hollywood has sort of come so far and oh, Black right. Panther was nominated for an Oscar. Yeah. And it's like, well, we're actually still having a lot of these yeah. same conversations that around representation in Hollywood. Well, I mean, I think, for, first of all, I think there's a definite continuity. I mean... John Wayne in the in the seventies looked at 
Clint Eastwood as this sort of upstart Mm -hmm. guy who was trying to steal his position Mm -hmm. as America's conservative right-wing star. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, then we have Clint Eastwood carrying on that legacy and becoming really a fucking absolute cartoon of himself. Um, but no, like you said, it's it's also you know when that when that Twitter thing happened, where people suddenly rediscovered mm-hmm. what an awful person John Wayne was. The defenders were coming out and saying, "Well, John Wayne was born in 1907." Yeah, you know, that it's a different context. It's yeah. like, but like you're saying, the context has not really changed. Right. Like none of this has really changed. Yeah. So I do think it's worth kind of exploring mm-hmm. on that level. Mm-hmm. And especially with a figure like that that is just so deeply ingrained in the American consciousness. Right. If, if only just to question it and be like, yeah, maybe not. Yeah. You know. We're being represented by men who are kowtowing to minorities where they can get votes. And uh, I think it's bad for, well, for our country. And I uh, am sad to see minorities make so much of themselves as a hyphenated American. I wish they'd all get to thinking that they're Americans as they should and as they have luckily been born here and couldn't be better off in any other place. Uh, they shouldn't, there shouldn't be so much whining and bellyaching. In the late 60s and early 70s, there was a period of considerable change. Civil rights for blacks, equal rights for women. Has this made America a better place? I am saddened by the fact that although we were a matriarchy, I think we will not be any longer. I think uh, uh, opening doors and tipping your hat to ladies is uh, probably a thing of the past. The the, um, forerunners of the women's liberation of today have, uh, have taken that feeling away from the average American man. But what about the civil rights? I mean, it's necessary. What about the civil rights? Well, we have 20 million blacks on this continent. Right. It was necessary to extend rights to them that perhaps for the first 199 years were denied them in this in, in this free America. I guess that uh, they've had a, a pretty tough break, but uh, uh, not quite as bad as uh, you and your do-gooder friends would uh, have them believe. They live as well here as they live in any other country over that 199 years. True, I think they do have a right to more rights, but it isn't a, a thing where where the rest of, of the uh, country should feel terribly guilty about anything because they have had a better life here and their fathers and mothers than they would have had any place else. All right, well, I think we're, we're in a good mood to, you know, move on to this move on to this film now. Sure. So let's let's talk briefly about the film itself, which is actually much lighter and fluffier than any of the conversation we've just had. Okay. Released in 1952, directed by Ford from a screenplay by Frank S. Nugent, shot in beautiful Technicolor, filmed on location in the Irish countryside. The Quiet Man was nominated for seven Oscars. It won for Wynton Hotch's cinematography and netted Ford his fourth Oscar for Best Director. And this was, like I said, an outlier in Ford's career and Wayne's career. Ford was primarily known for his lush, epic westerns. And The Quiet Man is a comedic romance set in Ireland. So it was a a huge departure for him. The studio, in fact, didn't even want to make this film and only agreed to let him do it on the condition that the same cast also make a western, (laughs) which they did, called Rio Grande with Wayne and Maureen O'Hara. 
But this was a passion project for Ford. And here we're getting into the, the St. Patrick's Day thing. Okay. Though born, like me, in Maine, John Ford was an Irish Catholic American who affected all of the heirs of an Irish immigrant. He dressed like an Irishman. He spoke like an Irishman, even pretending reportedly to speak Gaelic, which he did not actually speak. <laughs> And he drank like an Irishman. He wanted to be an Irishman. Mm -hmm. And this and this is the film that an American who romanticizes Ireland in that way makes. As Tom Deegan writes at Irish Central, The Quiet Man has been a St. Patrick's Day staple for over 60 years now. And for just as long, the film has had its detractors. Those who grumble that the film is little more than a brightly colored jaunt through Irish stereotypes. The drunks, the brawlers, and all those freckled redheads. The film is what some believe to be the worst piece of paddywhackery Hollywood ever produced. That was a new word to me. Paddywhackery okay. means Irish, stere stereotypical Irish, you know. All right. So paddywhackery. Got it. But again, I think that I think that's the point. I think this. I think the Quiet Man is a St. Patrick's Day classic, not because it's an authentic view of Ireland, but because it. it it speaks to that romanticized longing so many Americans have for a dream of Ireland that probably never really existed. Mm -hmm. uh, my family is about half Irish. My great-grandmother Annie Flood came over from Dublin at the turn of the last century. And though we have never fetishized our Irish ancestry as many Americans do, I do remember watching this film on TV as a kid and probably 90% of my concept of what Ireland was like came from this movie. Mm -hmm. And, you know, deep down, there's probably a little longing in me to, you know, go buy a little cabin in the Irish countryside. Uh, I, I'm i guessing probably I can't convince you to come with me. No, that you couldn't convince me to go out in Chicago on St. Patrick's Day. So. <laughs> no, I don't like to do that either. All the amateur drunks are, are it's out. It's just embarrassing. It really is. The stupid paper hats, the green shamrock. I can't. A lot of vomit. It's just so ludicrous. Yeah. <laughs> Besides, St. Patrick was an Englishman who, you know. You say this every year. I do, because it's true. <laughs> he fucked up the whole country. We were all peacefully druids before St. Patrick came along. <laughs> then we were blowing each other up with car bombs and stuff. No, forget it. So what's your what's your concept of St. Patrick's Day and, you know, the whole Irish thing? What's your association with that? So I Pro you probably don't deeply associate with that. Uh, weirdly. Particular holiday, yeah, I'm guessing. No, I don't. So... Yeah, I have no, I, I will admit my ignorance here. I really don't have any concept of Ireland outside of, um, I watch Hunger. <laughs> I mean, that's a more accurate view right, of so like that's, real Ireland than so, this is, um, certainly. So as far as pop culture goes, <laughs> that's probably my one touch point. Okay. And then, unfortunately, the really just, you know, Americanized, any excuse to drink too much Particularly here in Chicago, like they dye the river green and it's a whole oh, and they gee, have a I parade. For, I forgot and, they do that. <laughs> it's like, and there's actually a really. And let, let us be clear: you and I have lived in Chicago and have what? never participated in almost that. twenty years yeah, now. Yeah, and I have never been to the St. Patrick's Day parade. I have never seen, no. been there to see the river dyed green. No, I don't think I have ever gone out on St. Patrick's Day. No, I have never gone out on St. Patrick's Day. We huddle just, inside and yes. hide until the whole long weekend yeah. is over. It's ridiculous. I think I remember us having to go to the vet on St. Patrick's Day, and we were in a cab, and it was <laughs> oh, yeah. like early morning, and someone was already puking over into, yeah. into the curb, and it's just like it's like it's eleven yeah. o'clock. People are peeing. It's in a the little gutters, too early and, for yeah, you to be this it's messy. Just, it's just embarrassing. Um, 
But then there's also just like the political context of Chicago, right? Like there's a strong, there, you know, has historically been a very strong um, Irish immigrant community mm-hmm. in Chicago. Um, and for a very long time, it was the sort of seat of power for the city, like Mayor Daly and the entire sort of Daly yep. dynasty, right? And the, the tensions of that community with, say, the black community, the Latino community in Chicago. So, the, so those are my sort of context. <laughs> it's tied up in a lot of it's shit. It's tied up in a lot of shit. <laughs> none of it is a comprehensive picture of Ireland or, you know, okay. so, yeah. And none of it, for the record, will have anything to do with this movie. No. I also want to go on the record and say, just to diffuse all of this controversy and the John Wayne thing, I gave you the option of instead of watching this movie, oh my god, watching Leprechaun. That was not an option. <laughs> the horrible that, no, horror movie, no, Leprechaun. That's not an no. That was not a real choice in any way because <laughs> you knew I wasn't going to choose Leprechaun. Listeners, if you would like us next year no. to watch Leprechaun, no. Please send us a note Not watching and let us know that's what you would prefer nope. rather than all of this shit that we're doing today. I would imagine anyone who is actually Irish would be just irate <laughs> at the thought that we were watching <laughs> Leprechaun in honor of St. Patrick's Day. I'm, I'm slotting that in for next year. That's basically like me saying, yeah, I ate Lucky Charms, so I know all about <laughs> Ireland. Nope. No, I'm not doing it. And on that note, let's go watch The Quiet I'd like to tell you about The Quiet Man. He's John Wayne in a picture you'll soon be cheering. It's the story of Sean Thornton, a right-intended man who came from America to forget his past in Innisfree. There he met a fiery red-headed lass, and the village marriage broker went to work. That's a pretty bonnet you have on. Bonnet? Don't you be talking to me about bonnets. After leaving mine stuck up there like a... Easy now. Have the good manners not to hit the man until he's your husband and until he hit you back. Then her bully of a brother, Red Will Danaher, refused to pay her rightful dowry. <laughs> There'll be no locks or bolts between us, Mary Kate, except those in your own mercenary little heart. Mary Kate left him to go to Dublin. But he caught her at the station and brought her back with the whole town watching him do it. I'll pay you. Never! Then the fight was on. A fight they're still talking about in Innisfree. It's a wonderful picture. The finest ever brought to the screen by John Ford. And he's won three Academy Awards. His direction makes unforgettable the performances of John Wayne, Maureen O'Hara, Barry Fitzgerald, and Victor McLaughlin. And we're back. During the break, Nakia and I watched The Quiet Man. So, Nakia, what what's the verdict? Do you sort of wish we had watched Leprechaun? Um, I may have had more to say about Leprechaun. <laughs> to be honest, I've never seen Leprechaun. I really do think we should we should watch that together one of these days. I'm not going to be doing that. So, uh, so what did, what did you make of The Quiet Man? I, I have to confess, I had not seen this in a long time. I was a little worried about it. I, I still kind of think it's a cute movie. Okay. You, <laughs> I think, do not. I did not find it cute. I think for about 99% of it, I was pretty bored. And then the 1% was my sort of being appalled at <laughs> the uh, quote-unquote feminist's story that was happening there. So. It's a deeply feminist story. Sure. Of a sort, I guess. <laughs> yes. 
But you were bored. Yeah. Why were you bored? I was just bored. I don't... I did not find the sort of cast of characters that... Except for... I mean, Micheline... I love Micheline. I will admit... Micheline makes the movie. He is definitely... The, probably the best part of that movie for me. <laughs> this is Barry Fitzgerald, who's basically a living leprechaun. Yes, he really is. Um, but everybody else just seems sort of like a stock stereotype. And some of them, it sounded like they were doing an Irish brogue while like chewing on marbles or something. I couldn't quite <laughs> understand what they were saying. Yeah, You, you said about Micheline, in fact, when he first came on yeah, screen. I do, I you're like, am I supposed to be able to understand what he's saying? Or if saying? that was like the joke. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, I just, no. And I don't find John Wayne an engaging actor at all. He seems very wooden to me. Well, he, I mean, yeah, obviously he is. And I mean, that was sort of his style. Mm-hmm. But he also said this was one of his hardest roles because he felt like he was, you know, surrounded by this colorful cast of characters and he just had to play the straight man mm-hmm, mm-hmm. for, you know, 80% of the movie. Yeah. Which I think is true. He doesn't, he's just sort of reacting to people. He doesn't have much to do for most of the movie. Yeah. All right. Well, let's, let's talk about this story a little bit. So <laughs> what is that little shrug you just gave? It's like a, it's a nothing story, but Okay. <laughs> Sure. Well, you know, we've got at least, you know, a good 20 minutes of podcast we need to fill here before we can... Talk about anything else. ...justify releasing an episode at all. Anything so let's else. just try to... Let's just try to get through this, shall we? Let's go back to the Lucky Charms. <laughs> <laughs> so Wayne plays Sean Thornton, mm-hmm. a born in Ireland, yes. as it turns out, in this little village, but brought up on the slag heaps of Pittsburgh... And come home to Ireland, um, to the town of Innisfree, to buy the little cottage where he was born. Mm-hmm. What, so, t- so tell me about your reaction to John Wayne. This was your first, <laughs> your first John Wayne movie. It was. Um, I mean, I guess I should be thankful that I wasn't introduced to, or I didn't have to endure the sort of cowboys and Indians John Wayne. Yeah, we'll get to that. But <laughs> um, that this was him doing something different. Mm-hmm. Um, but do you remember um, the Birdcage? Sure. When Robin Williams is trying to teach Nathan Lane to be, like, a butch dude, and he's like, do John Wayne. Yeah. That's basically, I mean, (laughs) that was spot on, his little... Yeah. That, like, walk where it seems like his leg is sort of broken, and the (laughs) very, just, like, the weird accent that's from nowhere, really. And I just, yeah, I I don't, I don't get the appeal. So, no attraction. I mean, I know you... I know we talked about the political stuff and all of that, so you're predisposed to to hate him, but you don't see his being attractive in any way or a compelling screen presence. Or a star in any way. No, not at all. (laughs) Okay. So, not not on your list of the most beloved movie icons of all time? No. Okay, so Wayne is Wayne is he is he is picked up at the train station by Micheline O'Flynn. This is Barry Fitzgerald. Uh, talk to me. Talk to me about Micheline. I mean, Micheline is a cartoon character a little bit, basically like a, a, a living leprechaun, but very sharp. Mm-hmm. Also, very drunk. <laughs> yes, and apparently a part of the IRA. 
Yes. <laughs> Half this town is the IRA. In so. fact, this story was apparently originally much more political. Mm. And it took place during the Troubles. And, you know, there was a whole plot about the IRA and all of that. And that and was they just, just too interesting. They just excised all yeah. of that mm-hmm. from the story. Because that would have been plot. Um, in fact, they even, there's a line at the, when they get married, somebody gives a toast and says something about, may your children grow up in freedom. Yes. There was, a, the line was, grow up in national freedom. Mm. And they censored that because even that they thought was too political. Too hard, for, yeah. So yes, they, they decided to, to double down on the comedy and romance and just leave all the politics out. I would have rather had the IRA picture. I know. Well, you you preferred hunger. (laughs) (laughs) I didn't say I preferred hunger. I just said that that was what I had seen thus far. Um, So, yeah. I mean, again, I think he's probably, for me, the best part of the He's definitely got the best lines. He does have the best lines. I can't do... I'm I'm an Irishman who can't do an Irish accent or else I would try to repeat all of his lines. I don't know that you would get his accent ever, though, in a million... I mean, it's just... (laughs) When I drink whiskey, I drink whiskey. And when I drink water, I drink water. Yeah. No, he's great. Yes. And he is the town matchmaker. And cab driver. And cab driver. And bookie. He takes a lot of bets. He does take a lot of bets. (laughs) So he he wears a lot of hats. Okay. So where? let's see. Is it, it's pretty early that he runs into Mary-Kate, right? Yeah. So Sean's in the buggy, horse-drawn Buggy that Micheline is driving. Yeah. Do you drive a buggy or do you steer a buggy? Yeah. You drive a buggy, okay. sure. <laughs> I don't know that it matters that um, much. They come up to, you know, Sean's childhood cottage and he spots a lovely lass. In, walking through the fields. Walking through the fields sheep. with the sheep and she's red haired and wonderfully in Technicolor. Um, and then they have like a staring match. Her hair was pretty much built for yeah, Technicolor. It really was. It was amazing. Um, she looked she looked fabulous throughout the whole film. Yeah. Played by Maureen O'Hara. Yes. Um, and yeah, so they stare at each other for like 20 minutes. They have a moment. They have, and yeah. there's, there's, I think there's actual heat between them. No? That will require John Wayne bringing any sort of anima to the screen. <laughs> oh, come on. Whatsoever. They had chemistry. Sure. They had abusive relationship chemistry. <laughs> the the most energy you get from him is when he is, like, throwing her around a room or throwing her across yeah. a field. So yeah. I, I don't know how to feel about that. <laughs> and she is, this may just be the Irish in me coming out. Mm-hmm. She's pretty fucking hot. She's gorgeous. Yeah. You don't, like, watching the old Hollywood starlets, you don't always, that doesn't always transfer to the modern age. Mm-hmm. I think, I think it does with her. She's still very attractive presence She's on screen. She's a beautiful woman, yes. Okay, so that's pretty much a love at first sight kind of scene, so we know where that's going. Yeah. And then, uh, John's gotta, gotta go buy his, his little cottage. Mm-hmm. Which is owned by the widow Tulane, who is being somewhat reluctantly courted by Mary-Kate's brother. Uh, Will Danaher, played mm-hmm. by Victor McLaughlin, who is sort of the town bully. That's it, yeah. That's it? That's yeah. how, okay. That's... <laughs> is he anything else? <laughs> well, I mean, he's, you know. He's landed, I guess. Landed, uh, he's a, yes, sure. Squire Danaher, they call him. He's Whatever. a powerful man in town. But Squire Danaher wants wants to buy the same cottage that Sean wants to buy, so he can be close to the widow, who he's trying to marry. She gets in a snit about it and sells it to Sean and this is where the enmity enmity is that right I don't care (laughs) (laughs) this is where the conflict between Sean and Will Danaher starts yes so yeah and then it's nothing important um (laughs) Sean goes to 
church or mass or whatever, and uh, Mary-Kate is there, and he flirts with her over holy water, which is... <laughs> Who taught you to be playing patty fingers in the holy water? A new move for me. Um, <laughs> that's hot, right? That's a good That's a good move. No, that, that's, a, that's a straight ticket to hell right there. That's just... <laughs> that's not cool. And then proceeds to sort of court her awkwardly because she's not immediately receptive to it, at least, or at least she's playing court. I don't know exactly what the messaging is supposed to be here. <laughs> well, she does turn up in his house. She does. So she he moves into the house, and it's obviously it hasn't been inhabited in a very long time, so it's all run down and dirty. So she, like, sweeps up and starts a fire, but then hides in the corner when he gets home so that he doesn't know that she's in there and has done that. Um, and then tries to sort of run and escape once he discovers that she's in there. And he manhandles her <laughs> as she's trying to, you know, get out the door and, you know, drags her back into the, the cottage and kisses her against her will. And she smacks, she tries to smack him, which I appreciate. Right. She calls him on it. She says, yeah. who, ga- who gave you leave to be kissing me? But then she le- goes to leave again and then turns around and kisses him <laughs> because now she's in love because this is a guy who's going to hit me. Um, so... <laughs> It's a wonderful moment of love and romance. You're not feeling the romance of this movie at all. It's really difficult to see it. <laughs> Were I their friends, I'd say, this isn't a healthy relationship. But So he decides that he wants to marry her based off of nothing. And he... Uh, Go. Well, there's all. I mean, to be fair, there's only about fifty people in this town, so it's not like there are a lot of options. So okay, <laughs> that's a wonderful love story. Um, so he goes to Danaher, uh, Mary Kate's brother, and asks for her hand in the asks for permission to begin courting the old her. World yes, way. with Nicolene. Uh, yes. This is this is a whole process. It's a whole thing. It's a whole formal courtship process it that is, has to yes. be observed with all the formalities and proprieties. And Danaher, I believe, tells him to, like, fuck off, right? He's like, uh, pretty much, yeah. Mm-hmm. I don't like you. You sold, you bought the house that I wanted. And no, you absolutely cannot court my sister. And Sean says, okay, well, fuck this. I'll go the American route and I'll just go ask her myself. And he goes to ask Mary-Kate if she will, you know, basically marry him right then. And she, you know, turns away from him and doesn't really say anything. And Micheline has to explain that this is in his... What the fuck is it? <laughs> in his free. This is... <laughs> This is Innisfree, and that's not how we do this things. Is not here. America. She's not going to marry you without the blessing of her brother, right? Um, so you're going to have to go about this the right way. Okay, so uh, so let's slow down. So before this, Micheline has gone to propose the idea to Mary Kate. Right. Uh, shows up totally drunk, yes. totally sloshed mm-hmm. to to see if she is keen on the idea to begin with. Mm-hmm. And this is where we get. The first mention of the whole important issue of her dowry, her fortune. Right. And the fact that she basically doesn't have much of one, which is why she is, quote unquote, a spinster. Mm-hmm. But she has some furniture. She has a little money set aside. She has, you know, some stuff to bring to the marriage that is very important to her. And Sean doesn't care about any of that, doesn't care about her fortune. But again, this is one of those things that in this culture is essential. Mm-hmm. Even though even though the American doesn't care about that, it's very important to them. And very important to her. So that's that's going to be a conflict throughout the movie. Mm-hmm. So yes, now we're, now we're at the point where... Will Danaher has refused the courtship, mm-hmm. rejected Sean, and now we're at the angry portion of the movie where he's just brooding and riding his horse aggressively through the countryside. Right. 
And then we have a little conspiracy on the part of the town people to, to make this marriage happen. Because mm-hmm. everybody's just fallen in love with him, apparently. They're all, they're all on his side. I think they just don't have shit else to do. <laughs> so... Do you think they're just bored? Sort of. Hmm. Apparently all, I mean, according to this movie, all they do is hang out in the pub and talk about this, these two people. So seems to be all they've got. There, there is a, a lot of interest in their, the in their activities. The fucking IRA is an <laughs> person. So. One does wonder what they did for entertainment before this happened and what they do after the movie yeah. finishes to, to entertain themselves. But yes, the local priest and the local reverend and Micheline and all of these people form this little conspiracy to to make this marriage happen. Mm-hmm. We have the the Innisfree races, the horse race thing. Sure. Another wonderful feminist moment <laughs> where the men race to grab the bonnets of the wee lasses uh-huh. in the town. <laughs> Apparently the eligible the eligible women in town put their bonnets up. And the men race to them and grab them and then, you know, you belong to those men. And before the race, that sort of conspiratorial group um, gets inside of Danaher's ear and he's and tells him that, oh, well, you know, the widow, what the fuck is her name? Widow Tulane. Sure. Um, she is really into you, but she's not going to, you know, move into the house while your sister is still living there. So you need to right. find a Two way. Two women in the house. One of them a redhead. redhead. That's not going to um, work. Yeah. You need to get rid of your sister so that you yeah. can, you know, have a wonderful life with the widow Tulane. Um, so he's like, oh, okay. Now I need to get her back with Sean, even though I rejected Sean's proposal. And, and they also tell him that Sean, since he can't marry your sister, might be looking at the widow Tulane a little bit. Yeah. So you really, you really fucked that up. Yeah. Squire Danaher. So he's got his eyes sort of reset and his mind reset because he's stupid. And um, he... He's a, he's good. That's a good bluster, big blustery performance. He, in fact, sure. I think he was the only one nominated in this movie. Okay. No, you didn't? No. No? Okay. Um, you weren't. You weren't impressed with anything in this movie? I really wasn't. Um, it was pretty to look at in parts. Um, <laughs> oh, that's something. We'll talk about that. So, yeah. So the horse race happens... And Sean, instead of taking Mary Kate's bonnet, takes the widow Tillman's, that's not her name, (laughs) Tulane's bonnet. And, you know, Mary Kate's a little like, what the shit? Yeah, nobody takes her bonnet. Her bonnet's the only one left there, which is kind of... her reputation around town is that she's a redhead and she (laughs) is too much and she's not worth the trouble, which... um, So... Wait, wait, what was that little... You did a little look... She is a lot of work. You agree with this a little bit. She's a lot of work. (laughs) And I'm not quite sure she's worth the 30 pence or whatever the hell is on the table. So you didn't even like her. I am conflicted about Mary Kate. I think that Maureen O'Hara did probably the best job that could have been done in that role. Um, have you ever seen her before? I was trying to think. Maybe, uh, do you ever see the original Parent Trap? Yes. Okay. She's the mom. That's yeah. right. She was so fabulous in that and classy. Yeah. So... I think she was able to sort of go toe-to-toe with John Wayne in a way that I don't know that many other actresses would have yeah. been able to. They made quite a few movies together. So they make a formidable pair. She, the much more interesting one, of course. And I think this film walks a really fine line between being this sort of feminist manifesto and being just downright misogynistic and yeah horrifying. And the only thing that keeps it from tipping all the way over that line is her performance. Is the force of her and personality. And her strength, yeah. yes. So that I will give it. But, yeah, she was a pain in my ass. So, I yeah, but she was supposed to be. So, <laughs> so yeah, her bonnet is left standing alone. And um, what the fuck happens next? 
So that little conspiracy works. Right. So then Squire Danaher agrees to let them start courting. Because mm-hmm. he's now he's worried about losing the widow. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the courtship begins. Right. With them sitting awkwardly on opposite sides of the buggy while Micheline drives and yes. not talking. and Yes, because apparently part of the courting tradition is that they can't really touch each other or talk very much to each other or... Be alone together. Be alone together. And at one point, Mary Kate breaks it down that it is over the course of months before they will even be able to kiss each other. There's a period where they can walk down the street together, and then they can go to a dance together, and then they can do this, and then they can kiss. It's amazing anyone ever got laid. And Sean is like, no, that's not going to work for me. So we're not going to do that. And she's also like, yeah, that doesn't really work for me either. (laughs) And they decide to just go ahead and get married. Well, Well, they actually, while they're out, on this courtship, they actually make a break for it. They do make a break for it and go they off alone. Jump on a bicycle and, yeah, and, and escape Micheline. Frolic through the fucking moors or whatever the hell it is. <laughs> it's a lovely moment. I mean, this is supposed to be the part of the movie. I mean, this was, to some extent, a travelogue movie. It was, you know, showing the country, the beautiful countryside and these green rolling hills with the stone walls and these rivers and all of this. And you don't seem to have appreciated any of it no it was pretty it doesn't make me deeply want to go to ireland no 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 doesn't speak to your soul at all it does not okay it doesn't i it's yeah no i i'm not interested in being the black person in ireland that's fair that's (laughs) fair i just don't i won't be going there um it's hard enough when we go to maine it is (laughs) hard enough when we go to maine and your family tells me i look like eartha kit so (laughs) i just, I don't want a whole country of that, so I'm just not going to do it. <laughs> so, yeah, they get married. Wait, you're, you're jumping. No, stop trying to jump ahead to this movie. You're so, you just want it to be over with. I really do. Okay, what's next? Well, I mean, we didn't even finish talking about that. The whole making out in the pouring rain in the graveyard scene does nothing for you. What could that possibly do for me? Well, you know, you got John Wayne with his shirt all wet. And- I do not find John Wayne in any way attractive. So I do not want to linger on moments where he is supposed to be a sexy, romantic lead. Right, fine. If you would like to discuss John Wayne's wet shirt. No, I'm just, you know. By all means. These are the big moments in the movie. I feel like we ought to do them justice. But apparently there were no These are the moments, moments where I'm like, Mary-Kate, you in danger, girl. Because this is just, it's not a good relationship. There, it's just, no. Nope. Toxic. <sighs> All right, so yes, they get married. Mm -hmm. And they're sitting, they're staged for this, like, picture for their wedding, and they look the unhappiest I've ever seen two people look on their (laughs) wedding day before in my life. I think that's about the photo, that's a thing, when you look at those old photographs, everybody looks somber and not very happy, and part of that is that the process of taking a photograph took so long. Okay. So that's, you know, it's not... They weren't like candid snapshots. You were like sitting there posing for fucking hours, mm-hmm. basically waiting for the asshole to take the picture. So I think that's why they look like that. I don't think it's about anything about their joy on their wedding day. Okay. <sighs> so yeah, it's their wedding day. It's lovely. Everyone's blah, 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 blah. Everyone's happy. Cheering them and it's lovely. Danaher has agreed to give the to dowry. her fortune. Yes. 350 pounds or something on her. Mm-hmm. 
And he's in a good mood. He is. Until he finds out that the widow Tulane <laughs> wants absolutely nothing to do with him. That this whole conspiracy was a lie. He thinks now he can just marry the widow Tulane. Right. And he announces it, that they're without going to get married. discussing with her. Without yes. bothering to check in with her about that. And she's like, yeah, no, I'm not interested in that at all. And so... And then he throws a little hissy. He thinks that Sean was in on the whole thing as a fraud to get his sister's hand. And so he calls everything off, takes a dowry, and is like, no, this is, you know, you're full of shit. Mm-hmm. And punches Sean clean the fuck out. And Sean wakes up and he's like, let's go home. Wait, hold on. All right. <laughs> You're skipping the, the big tragic backstory now. Oh, for fuck. Okay. <laughs> so... <laughs> Because that punch right. brings us yes, to a, a flashback. flashback. Yes, so we find out why Sean the American has fled to Littletown in his free Ireland. And it's because in back in America, he was a boxer. Mm-hmm. And in his last fight, he hit the guy so hard that he died. Yeah. And he, he felt, accidentally killed his opponent yeah, in the ring. Tremendously terrible about it. And there was all like this just sort of fraught anxiety around sort of fighting and fighting for money and so he wanted to get away from that all and that's how he ended up in Innisfree, Ireland. Here's a here's a just an aside comment on that scene, that flashback. It's actually shot really well. I think that's it's a the really th- interesting that's shot. That's it's it's really interesting because it's a completely different style mm-hmm. from the entire rest of the movie. Mm-hmm. It's not Ford's style at all. Ford did not do he didn't move the camera much. He didn't do a lot of close-ups and that i don't whether it was just his decision to film that in a different way or whether someone else actually it's possible that a an assistant director shot that segment or something but it's a nice effect because it it, it does make it completely make that flashback completely different from the rest of the movie yeah it all it's almost like a film noir style yeah absolutely um shot with really tight close-ups on their faces and stuff It's, Mm -hmm. it's really interesting okay but yes so this is this is why he's He's a quiet, peace-loving man who's come to Innisfree, and this is why he does not want to fight. And doesn't really care about money. Right. Uh, so, yeah. So, he takes uh, Mary-Kate to their, you know, new married couple home. Mm-hmm. And she's like, I'm not going to fuck you until <laughs> you get me my fucking money. And... He doesn't quite understand, like, why it's so important to her. Right. Um, He's like, we have enough money. What do you care? Why do you care about your few sticks of furniture? And she's like, those were, like, my my mother's things and my grandmother's things. And they're the only thing that, you know, are mine and mine alone. And as long as I don't have them, I'm not your wife. I'm your servant. Right. I'm the servant I've always been. And I do think there is sort of an interesting feminist angle in this. I mean, this is a hugely patriarchal society. Mm -hmm. It is incredibly sexist. Women have no rights, no property. The dowry is all they have. Right. It's the way that she can come into the relationship as an economic equal. As an equal. It's a way to have any independence. Mm -hmm. And she's right. Without that, Mm -hmm. she is just basically... Just being passed from one man to another. Right. So she locks herself in the bedroom. Yeah. And here's another very manly scene here. Is that what we're calling it? <laughs> I would call it abusive. So Sean kicks the door in and grabs her as he is wont to do uh-huh. and says, There will be no locks between us, Mary Kate. And then Except the ones in your cold mercenary heart. Forces a kiss on her and then throws her on the bed. She thinks they're about to get down and he just walks out. <laughs> Breaking the bed. Breaking the marital yes, bed. He throws her down on the bed. So it's a moment of something. I guess we're calling love. 
And um, so he sleeps in his sleeping bag on the floor and she sleeps on the bed. And when the town comes to their house the next morning, she, you know, asks him not to shame her and, you know, clean himself up so it doesn't look like he slept right. on the he floor. Doesn't, she she doesn't want the town to know that right. this marriage has not been consummated. And so they come and... Is that when they bring her shit? Yeah, they they okay. manage to get all of her furniture. They get and all stuff. the furniture and they bring it to the house, and she's very thrilled at that. But mm-hmm. they did not get the actual dowry, the money. Right. right. And so you know, no nucky, no nucky, <laughs> no romance with no finance. So <laughs> it's a good rule. I think so. And so she is basically getting to the point where she's embarrassed. Of Sean, because Sean will, is refusing to fight for her dowry. Right. And putting shame upon her because she is, you know, in a marriage without... She's she's in a marriage without... That she that isn't consummated. And... There's she, not going to be any children. Not going to be any right. children. And she doesn't have her dowry. And she kind of thinks he's a coward. And she does think he's a coward. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and at this point, they both consult with the, the local uh, Priests, religious figures. Yeah. She consults with the one of them. The spiritual leaders yeah. of the town. And he's busy fishing and isn't really yes, trying to listen to Yes, this is the priest who's fishing and what she wants what she's trying to say um but she then speaks in gaelic yeah um because it was too shameful to say <laughs> too in shameful english. to say in english basically telling him i'm not letting my husband get any nookie because um he won't go get my dowry and the priest's response is basically like bitch you better it's a marital bed you better go ahead and do about your business as a wife a man sleeps in a bed not a bag right and mm-hmm. so that changes her mind and then sean has his conversation with with the it's the protestant the protestant the, the reverend who knows who sean was back in america he yes knows, he's the only one that knows about right, the boxing story that he was a boxer and that he killed he murdered someone and so understands why sean wouldn't want to necessarily fight oh danahan what's his name <laughs> danaher danaher mm-hmm. but is also like you need to understand the situation that you know mary kate is in and that's your wife and blah 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 Right. So they both go home, have sex, it's implied. Because <laughs> uh, he yeah. wakes up literally smelling roses. <laughs> <laughs> he comes out of that bedroom looking very happy for the first time yes. in a long time. But she was like, never mind, and <laughs> leaves him sometime in the middle of the night to go take a train. Maybe it just wasn't very good. Here, Here's what I'm going to say. Okay. John Wayne does not look like somebody that can throw down in the bed. Because, like, there are some people you can look at and be like, no. Like, again, I point to his walk. I point to his wooden speech. I point to his just total lack of charisma or rhythm. Um, so I would not be surprised. And Maureen O'Hara looks like somebody that will tear you the fuck up in a bit. So I would understand that. So she leaves, and she leaves a note with uh, Micheline, which don't leave really traumatic personal notes with the town drunk because that seems like a poor way to deliver messages, but okay. And Micheline is basically like, yeah, she fucks you, but she's super not into it because she's embarrassed by you, dude. Right. She said she loves him too much to go on living with a man she's ashamed of. Because you're a punk ass bitch and you won't go get her dowry. She's going to go get on a train and go to Dublin randomly Mm -hmm. with like one bag. And nothing else. And this is the breaking point of the movie. Sure. This is where all, all the tensions come to a head. So then we spend like fucking 40 minutes. Okay, oh, slow down. <laughs> okay, so th- this is the moment where watching it this time I realized that this kind of is a Western. We talked, you know, so? John Ford and John Wade made yeah. all these Westerns. It sort of is, formulaically, it sort of is. Because it's it's the classic story of the reluctant gunfighter who mm-hmm. has hung up his guns, mm-hmm. doesn't want to fight anymore, but is 
is lured back into this big confrontation with the with the villain in the town. Mm-hmm. And eventually they have to come together and have this shootout in the street. And that's Except it's less basically what happens here. Than that. <laughs> it's like the most rock'em sock'em ass fight <laughs> across the town. Okay, so he goes he goes to the train station. He rides up on a horse. Yeah. Goes to the train, starts opening train doors and slamming train doors he's, looking for he's this. He's really pissy. So angry. Like this is He's such a fucking child. There are so many scenes where he's just like kicking rocks angrily and slamming things down angrily and sm- lighting cigarettes and then and- throwing it down angrily before even smoking it. It's just like get the fuck over yourself. He dude. wastes a lot of cigarettes. He just, takes like two puffs on every cigarette just, and throws them down angrily. Like, angrily. You obviously have anger problems, dude. Maybe you need to get some therapy, you and your wife. But okay, well, anyway. he, did, he did beat a man to death in the ring. So Not on purpose. You know, yeah, well. but, okay, get some help. Talk to somebody. I don't. I don't think John Wayne's the kind of guy who goes to therapy. I don't think that's his. His thing. And get the stick out of his ass if they could have gone. Is that why he walks like that? I don't know what the deal is, but he needs to get it checked out. Um, <laughs> so he finally finds her and then proceeds to snatch her off the train. <laughs> yeah. And drag her, literally drag her yeah. five miles back to town <laughs> to confront her brother. Yeah. And while he's dragging her, the entire town is walking behind them, cheering this on. Yes. So much so that one woman comes up and says, here's a stick to beat the lady with. <laughs> and here's, and the, so I know this is the part where you were most appalled. Yes. And I think that's fair because i also think there's a little suggestion that she's super enjoying, enjoying it. it yeah she's super into it in a very uncomfortable way <laughs> like this is what she's been waiting right. for him to and do that's what the saying, entire like, it's a celebration movie. of like a woman that wants to get hit and yeah. i and so that's where i have the difficulty with the feminist lens i'm just like yeah. uh no, that's like, that's fair i'm ggg I, you know whatever you're sort of into mm-hmm. a little smack on the bottom all right uh-huh. okay but he dragged your ass for five miles in front of the town. You're so concerned with shame. He dragged your ass literally across town to the point where you're losing shoes and shit. But he's acting like a man. But that's a problem, right? Like, it's a problem well, that I mean, we this, think that this, this goes is back manhood. to our discussion about, you know, John Wayne is this figure of masculinity on screen. But then, And then this is what feeds that mentality that a lot of men have is like, oh, she's saying no, but she really means yes. Like, right. She just wants me to be a little bit rougher with her. It's like, no, no. No, actually, I don't. I'm actually saying no. Get the fuck away from me. What I will say is Maureen O'Hara is the physical comedy of it. I mean, she like she was getting dragged. Yeah. And she, but her was, shoe falls yeah, off. She's she, trying to put her shoe back and she's on. She's like hopping she, on one leg. And so like the physicality no. of it, she did a she's great She's fantastic. She's, she really is, but it's such a problematic role. And so I have so much difficulty with it because I want to like celebrate her as an actress is like yeah. that you you took some shit on with that but at the same time saying that's a horrifying thing yeah um so anyway they go to confront his brother and um he's like okay give me my bitch's money because <laughs> i'm done with this it's, i'm getting tired of it and if you don't give me the money then you can just take her back and then literally throws her to the ground at the feet of her brother and he's like okay you can have right her. he's like these are yeah. your rules not mine without the dowry she's right. not really married to me so you have to take her back so Danaher is like, okay, here's your 300 whatever, how many dollars it is. And he throws the money on the floor. Sean picks it up. And then um, Mary Kate go, they're like in front of a, I don't know what the, the fuck this is. Boiler sure. furnace type thing. But she opens it up and they throw the money in the fire because it was never about the money. <laughs> um, and you got dragged five miles for this money and then you burn it because it's for the principal. I just don't, I, I can't. So then she's like, oh, 
honey, I'll be at home cooking dinner and I'll wait for you to get everything's, there. Everything's fine now. And then she walks off proud like she just fucking Queen Nefertiti or somebody. And I'm just like, bitch, you just got dragged, literally dragged. But okay, fine. So then Sean and the brother have to fight because that's what, I guess, people in Ireland do is fight. <laughs> and so the whole town is around them placing bets on the fight. And um, what is it? It's a Donnybrook um, it is quite the Donnybrook, yes. So it's a very cartoonish fighting sequence that I feel goes on way too long. <laughs> it is a ridiculous fight. It's not even, I mean, he's supposed to be a boxer. Right. He's not boxing. No, he's just They're sort of They're just doing taking like these punches. huge looping yeah. punches at each other. Falling in the haystacks. And people keep throwing water. Like every time they fall down, somebody throws a right. bucket of water. First of all, why are there so many buckets of water lying around? I don't know. Falling into little rivers and falling into haystacks and falling all of it. it and it's just it's, it's the the fight lasts like eight minutes and it seems much it seems long. like a twenty minute it fight. It really does. <laughs> and they both get up with like no scratch on them. So it's just like, okay, what the fuck? Um they take a pause to go to the pub. <laughs> That's my favorite part though. Again, they just We're in Ireland. We're gonna take a break, we're gonna go have a pint. Have a pint and it starts out very cordial and it's fine. They're they're, bo- they're male bonding. They at are because they're fighting over who's gonna pay the bill and then Danaher throws a pint in Sean's face and that's like, okay, now we gotta go back and start the shit again. So they start fighting again. Um so they're fighting, 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 fighting. Fight, 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 fight. <laughs> and I don't know, at some point it's called and Sean has won, I guess, and they... Yeah, up. we only know that from the bets. We right. don't see him win, no. but we see the people it, it who bet on him win their money. for what we so. see. Um, but they end up, like, walking home... Drunk. Arm in arm, singing a fucking... The best friends in the world. Danny Boy, whatever the hell they're singing, and... <laughs> There's a lot of singing in this movie. It's a lot yeah. of drunken singing... Way too many people with accordions just <laughs> at hand. Um, What's the right number of people with accordions? I'm, Z- I'm, it really is zero. I'm curious. It really is. Like, it should be something you have to go get. And that wasn't the case. Like, everybody was just there. We have accordions. Of course we have accordions. Nobody had to say, oh, I got to go home and get my accordion. I, I had a music professor in college who had a sign on his door saying, play an accordion, go to jail. Yeah. Because it's 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 not the, the prettiest instrument. It's a, it's a, it's a acquired taste. So, yes, they have bonded. They are the best of friends. They go home to drunk to dinner at the cottage where Mary-Kate has dinner waiting to Woman serve Woman, where's them. my food? Woman, where's shit. my food? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And she's too happy to serve her men. <laughs> is that the end? All is right with the world. Yeah. Uh, pretty much, yeah. We have a little kind of a little village montage after that of all the happy people in the village mm-hmm. and... There's a whole thing with the Protestant bishop and the Catholics were all pretending to be Protestants to convince the bishop to let him keep his job. That's a whole little... Yeah, that didn't make any sense to me. Subplot that that's only interesting because it, it's this little fantasy version of how of Catholics and Protestants right. getting together. Right. Again, it's just a sign of how far this story came from being about the troubles. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, that's uh, pretty much it. And then the last shot is of Sean and Mary-Kate happy together. She whispers something in his ear and then runs back to the house. Mm-hmm. And he chases after her happily the end. This was a scene where Maureen O'Hara said that John Ford told her what to whisper in his ear. Mm-hmm. And whatever it was, was provocative. And she said, oh, I can't say that to the Duke. 
And uh, and Ford convinced her to do it on the condition that no one would ever know what it was that she said to him. So whether she said something dirty or whatever it was, Ford wanted the, the natural reaction on, on Wayne's face because mm-hmm. Wayne didn't know what she was going to say. I see. So that's, you know, and Maureen O'Hara never revealed what it was she whispered in his ear in that final shot. He still came off totally wooden and unemotive. <laughs> so whatever she said, it wasn't enough. Uh, and that's the quiet man. Uh-huh. So not apparently a rousing success for you. Is that a surprise? I mean, it's not entirely a surprise, no. Uh, You said it was pretty. It was pretty. I mean, Ireland is beautiful on film. It's Mm -hmm. very, I mean, in Technicolor, it it really does have this sort of painterly. And Ford is a, was a fantastic director. Mm -hmm. He did the scenery shots were fantastic. He's, he's got a very slow, deliberate style that just lets everything play out. He plays out in long shots. Mm -hmm. Um, It's really quite gorgeous. Not a lot of dialogue. He was famous for removing every bit of unnecessary dialogue. This is actually very talky for him. Mm -hmm. Um, But he, Supposedly, he was famous for accusing actors of adding lines, Mm -hmm. adding dialogue. And when they looked, you know, they would look at the script and be like, no, that's what was written there. And he's like, well, fucking take it out. (laughs) He's like, we don't need it. He he loved the visuals. He loved to just let things play out Mm. in the frame. Mm -hmm. Um, So it is. It's a a very pretty movie. It is. Um, It does not make you want to go to Ireland, though. It does not. I mean, I'd hang out with Mikulene a little bit. But... (laughs) Other than that, no. Uh, you couldn't keep up with Micheline. I could, oh, no, I would never try to drink with him. Absolutely not. No, but I can tell you blood curdling tales, but my throat, my oh. throat's gone dry. I think if I'm being very generous with this film, mm-hmm. we could say that sort of knowing what you have told me of Ford's politics, that this is somehow a subtly. Um, anti-American film and that this is, you know, a lot. M- most of Hollywood has been the immigrant coming to America and that being sort of the start of this wonderful, amazing story. Whereas this is sort of the reverse of someone fleeing America because they didn't like the sort of capitalism and the violence and the sort of ideals huh, of America. That, that's interesting. I hadn't thought about that. Um, but doing it in a way that it, it doesn't scream that because it, then it, you, you plop him into this almost sort of cartoonish, like almost... Um, like Munchkinland sort of place. <laughs> That's like, and it, it sort of worked. This sort of fits because like Munchkinland, there's this actual like deep authoritarian regime that they're trying to right get out of, but they don't talk about it really in that way and it isn't handled that way. And in in this film, you like the IRA is like there's the troubles are happening. This is but it's not really talked about and it's not really dealt with that way. And it's 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 very sort of sugar coated. Very sure. Yeah. So, At one point, Micheline says, "Well, it's a nice soft night. I think right. I'll go talk, I'll go talk, talk with, my comrade, with my comrades. My comrades, right? Yeah. And so it's a, so it's a way of being un American without screaming that and without coming off as a political film. I mean, yeah, I don't think I don't think anyone would could say Ford was anti-American. Well, not anti, but but so it's an inter- sort of that's an interesting. Re- rejection of America. Like, Sean was just, he just was like, I don't want to do America anymore. Like, I want But he's also bringing his American values into this community and becomes virtually a folk hero overnight. Like, this town loves, fucking loves him. But he then had to learn to adopt that those traditions in order to sort of get the life that he wanted there. Yeah. Like he had yeah. to sort of okay. shed a lot of it as much as he was going to, to, you know, be with the woman he quote unquote loves. So, I mean, but again, that's me being generous and trying to like, you know, this sort of the flip side of the American mythologizing, but yeah, I didn't care for it. <laughs> do you, do you, do you think this, uh, this marriage is going to work out? No, I do not. <laughs> I think their children will grow up in a very troubled household. 
Okay. Do, do you think ours is going to work out? No. Not if we keep <laughs> watching shit like this. Absolutely not. Okay, that's our show. We want to thank you for listening, and we hope you'll join us again next week. Nakia, there is an actor who has come up several times during our discussions, and I'm using the term actor in the loosest possible sense. Mm -hmm. Uh, You and I have very different opinions about this performer. (laughs) I am talking, of course, about Keanu Reeves. Greatest actor of your generation. (laughs) (laughs) And several people have written in to ask if you have ever seen Point Break. I have not. And here's the thing, I have never seen Point Break. Oh. Partially because of how I feel about Keanu Reeves, partially because I think it came out just a couple of years after the point in my life where I would have seen movies like Point Break. Mm -hmm. I just never saw it, and I never went back and caught up with it. And yet somehow now my generation has decided that this is this fondly remembered must-see. Classic, cult classic, camp classic, I don't know what it is. Because it's Keanu Reeves. (laughs) So, for no particular reason, I thought we maybe next week would watch this movie together and see what we can make of it. He's like make out with Patrick Swayze or something? I think it is sort of a bromancy okay. thing, I'm, yeah. I'm definitely into this, alright. I thought you would be, and I thought it would be a nice... I'm all, uh, yeah, fuck John A nice Wayne. gift to you yeah. after the John Wayne movie. I appreciate it. <laughs> so that's next week. In the meantime, you can find us on the web at unaffiliatedcritic.com, where you can download earlier episodes, leave us a comment, find our social media links, or make a donation to support the podcast. As always, we encourage you to suggest a film Nakia desperately needs to see to make her life complete. Until next time, remember, true love means conning your partner into watching movies they really, really don't want to watch. It does not mean dragging them five miles into town. Well, you know. Nope, it does not. Let's just be clear on that. I feel like there are some things we can be real clear on. Love comes in many forms. Not that form.